Welcome back to About Learning with me, Stan Pinsent. Today I'll be speaking to Fran McCarthy, a veteran of democratic schools. She's dedicated her career to schools in which children are free. They're not forced to do things they don't want to do. And yet Fran is considered a behavior expert and even runs a course on conflict resolution. Right now, Fran is on the cusp of starting an exciting new democratic school with some of Sydney's most disadvantaged young people. Fran and I talk about what a democratic school is, how school can work when children have autonomy, why school doesn't have to be boring to be enriching, how learning is measured without exams, why disadvantaged children can handle freedom, and perhaps most interestingly, some little things that ordinary parents and teachers can do to give children agency. Enjoy the show. Hi, Fran McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Stan, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for getting in contact. I'm really excited about this episode because hopefully you're going to tell us about democratic education and democratic schools something I've been reading about so much outside the show, uh, but something that we've not been able to talk about on the podcast yet. So I'm really, really excited. Can you tell me about yourself and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm here in Australia, in Sydney, um, but I actually did my teacher training in New Zealand and way back, way back in the dark ages. Then I worked in New Zealand for a few years before I went to Africa and Uganda, and I was working in an international school there. And for 18 months, I ran their international preschool before I came back to Australia. And then for 20 years, I was working in a democratic school in Sydney. Um, And that was where I've got all my experience and it sort of guided and led me through where I am now. I did then a year as a educational leader at Kinmar, which is the other alternative school in Sydney, as only two of them now, um, because I'm studying and I'm also starting a school. So they sort of supported me financially to be able to do that. Um, And I also uh, have been going around schools supporting executives, supporting teachers, supporting uh, school teams to develop behaviour management programs and looking at how children are disciplined and how you can manage behaviour, particularly around trauma, which is becoming a bigger issue uh, and there's so much more understanding now around how trauma affects how children behave. Um, And then, uh, of course, I did five years as principal of a school in Redfern for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And that is the topic of my PhD. Excellent. So much to pick up on there. Uh, the big one I'm interested in is, is democratic schools. So you worked in democratic schools for 21 years or something. I mean, we all know what democratic means, but what, what is a democratic school? The wonderful thing about democratic school and the thing that appealed to me most about uh, democratic school is that there's no hierarchy in the staff. There was no principal, no boss. There was really no hierarchy, but there was an opportunity for everybody to have a voice. And that's the other key component of any kind of democratic education is allowing the voice of everyone. So at Carambina, there is a preschool. So it's from three-year-olds up to 12-year-olds. So that's preschool up to just before they go to high school. So every child had as much of a right to have a voice as I did 
as one of the teachers. And even as a senior teacher, when I'd been there for a long time, the three-year-old, if they put their hand up in a meeting and I put my hand up in the meeting, the child would get as much right to be listened to and acknowledged as I would as a teacher and supposedly an influential person. The other part of the democratic education is, of course, the meetings. So each class had their own class meetings. And then at the end of the week on Friday morning, the whole school would gather. And that could include family members. It could include anybody who was interested. So these meetings were run every Friday and they were run by the children. So each class had a turn at running the meeting. Topics would be uh, how much, many buckets of water are you allowed to put in the sandpit? Would be one of the conversations. Uh, another conversation could be um, someone is not cooperating and not following the rules and ruining the garden. What would be uh, a discussion around that? So they would be put on the agenda. Then the two people sit up at the front of the meeting and it could be two three-year-olds or it could be, could be two 12-year-olds. It was about, it's about empowerment. It's about getting used to making decisions and be part of decision-making. I mean, it sounds utopian, the way you describe it. It sounds like young people from the, the age of three are learning how group decisions can be made and, you know, co- collaboration and compromise. And But what about the, the opposite, the other side of that coin, which is often in adult life, you have to do things you don't like. You have to go to work when you don't feel like it. You have to work for a boss and do what they say. And conventional school teaches you that every day. You have to do what the teacher says. You have to do things you don't want to do just because it's for the greater good. So don't you find children who've been raised in this democratic school environment find it really hard to conform in a way that damages their life prospects? And interestingly, just about every parent asks that question. You know, don't we have to teach our children how to be bored? No. <laughs> Why would you want to hear, you know, send your children out into the world with the understanding that my life is going to be boring? Wouldn't you want them to send them out into the world going, life's exciting and there's endless possibilities and, and I have some control over this and I can actually be making these kind of decisions? And then they, the other question parents often ask me is, well, how are they going to cope in high school? You know, they're going to go in, they have to sit down, they have to sit up straight, they have to put on the uniform, they have to pull up their socks, they have to be do as they're told, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they're going, well, you know, aren't we making it really hard for them? And I go, no, actually, you're actually making it easier for them. And democratic education and what we were doing is teaching children how to be humans. We were teaching them how to communicate and how to socialise and how to be with people, how to be empathetic and compassionate. They're switched on to what's going on and they're switched on to the relationships. So when my son started at school, he said at high school, he went in on the first day and the, the teacher came into the classroom, slammed his hand on the table and said, this is a dictatorship, not a democracy. And all the kids just looked bamboozled. And one of the kids said, well, what the hell does that mean? And my son said, well, it means he's the boss and we don't get a say. And of course, then he got in trouble because <laughs> he had an opinion and, and he explained what the meeting was, uh, the meaning of the words were. Um, I went to an interview uh, with my son after his first year of high school with a teacher and she went through his grades and his tests and he passed all his tests and he's done this and all that and that. And then she said, and as I was leaving, she said, but he's a very strange child. Oh, is he? She said, yeah, yeah. He's, and um, he says thank you after every lesson. And I went, so, so that's strange. And she said, yes, that's a very strange child. And I went, okay, good. So on the way home, I said to my son in the car, I said, I was talking to your you know, English teacher, and she said you were very strange because you said thank you at the end of each lesson. And he said, oh, 
he said, Fran, she's just not coping. I, I don't know how she can do what she does every day. She said, well, everybody's so rude and disrespectful. They throw things at her. She often cries. So he said, I just acknowledge at the end of every lesson that she's done well to stay in the class. So I just go and I thank her every time. I mean, first of all, your son sounds great. Uh, I'm glad he was so kind to that poor teacher. Yeah, I guess I, I want to keep pushing back because anecdotally, this sounds great. That It sounds like you're producing wonderful young people who understand others, which I think everyone can get on board with. Education is increasingly becoming a science and uh, the whole institution of education is trying to use science and evidence and scientific methods to figure out the best way of teaching children what they need to know. Your democratic school sounds like it ignores all of that sort of science about how best to teach and just treats kids as individuals who can somehow magically control their own learning even though they've never been taught to. And I think that whole concept is alien to people. And I think a lot of people would say, well, if your method is the best, where's your evidence that it's the most effective? In Britain, in the state sector, schools are praised when students make fast progress between the main assessments. And they're criticised when the progress is below average. So the idea is good schools should be able to demonstrate they're teaching what needs to be learnt with fast progress between tests. So do you agree there's a lack of evidence? And do you see that as a problem if there is a lack of evidence? Um, so we don't have numbers. Uh, we don't we don't put numbers on children. So children are not put into a box of uh, successful, unsuccessful failure. Um, and we also think it's really important that children are treated as an individual. And e each child brings a different kind of person to the table. So it's acknowledging what they bring to the table. We don't do standardised testing, but we do individualised assessment. So for all of the children in my class, I would know exactly where they were on all of their reading levels. And, and we are required by uh, the education department to ensure that we are covering all the outcomes required in the curriculum documentation, which there is a huge amount of. So my role as a teacher is to be, in a way, going behind the children and doing and checking on their learning and finding ways to show evidence that these children are learning and knowing what they need to know. So often there would be times when I would look at a child's work and I'd say to them, can I get a copy of that? And that would be my evidence to go into that individual child's folder to say they have achieved this level of reading ability. They've achieved this level of understanding mathematical concepts. They understand the importance of grammar. So I can prove it. So my role as an educator is to be accountable. And that is a crucial role of being a teacher in one of these schools. I mean, 90% of the time is it's amazing and you're there with your children, but the rest of the time you are accountable. I think that we have too a narrow vision of what success is and that we are trying to funnel all these children through a very thin toothpaste tube and all spitting them out the other end with the same colour, same shapes, same size, and that other children, the children just fall away the wayside. Mm. That, that the children who are not academically successful by five and a half are then labelled as failures in the system. We, we'll set up some programs for them. Um, we'll, we'll set up pathways for them that they can, you know, we can do things, we can do some token activities for them. But really what we've told these children is that they've failed. So five and a half and six, you know, now they have a test for five-year-olds when they turn up. So a decision is made when a child is five 
if they're going to be an academic success or not. And mm. you talked about all the science that we now have around understanding how children learn. The science is pointing towards what we're doing. The science is showing social and emotional well-being needs to come before anything else. The ability to communicate and socialize and have a sense of belonging and identity and purpose comes before anything else. And if a child has all of those things, the development of their brain is huge. Their cognitive abilities have no limit because they're not limited by fear and anxiety and stress and pain. So I'm just about to read a book called The Origins of Happiness. The researchers were try trying to look and see what about someone's childhood determined their future well-being as an adult. So the headline results are that academic success it has quite poor correlation with happiness and well-being in later life. The biggest determinant is whether you suffer from, from mental health problems as a child. And if you do develop mental health problems as a child, that correlates with often quite bad outcomes as an adult. It's much stronger than any other effect, which perhaps isn't surprising when you hear it. But when you look at schools whose priority is push academic success at almost any cost, and then when mental health problems arise, try and desperately do something about it, it seems really out of kilter with that whole idea of well-being so schools i don't think schools can currently claim to be acting in sort of people's holistic best interests well even for my school i feel like we push academic success all the time we give we give children constant messaging around you should be working hard you need to do well you're going to fail this test if you don't and then when anxiety and depression rear their heads we have to put something together so I've got a class of 17-year-olds of in my school and we're putting on this eight-week um, or eight-lesson course of well-being. And I, I think it's, it basically feels outrageous because I know that a lot of children that I teach are struggling, that they have low self-esteem, they have anxiety, they're worried about the future, um, they have low confidence. But the idea that, that essentially teaching them eight lessons on how to look after yourself, like how to feel well, as if that is going to undo years of messaging about you need to jump through these hoops and you can't leave this room if you want to and all this, as if eight lessons is going to undo that. It's just outrageous. A word you used a lot when you spoke just now was individual. And um, I appreciated that because I've recently gone back to a new school year, having read a lot of very out there books about education. And what struck me is how wholesale the educational experience is. Children are used to being herded around in groups. And once you've heard, once, you, once I've read about democratic schools, suddenly when children are asking me, can I go to the toilet? Am I allowed to blow my nose? You know, can I stand up and go and help this person with this math problem? When you hear that, you realize how institutionalized these children are. I understand that a lot of teachers who work in mainstream schools they fantasize about having a job where they could actually pay attention to individuals, where they didn't have to be strict all the time, where they didn't have to dole out stress as a motivator for working hard. I think when, when schools do pop up, which offer something different. So, for example, in London, there's a new democratic school opening called The New School. And I've heard that lots of people are kind of trying to get jobs in there because, you know, they can finally be the teachers they want to be. When you hear about that, you kind of think, well, why aren't there more schools like this? Clearly, a lot of teachers are interested in, in pushing education in this direction. And then when you read about democratic education, you realize that m 
people see the golden age as being 50 years in the past. In the 1960s and 1970s, that's when these sort of radical democratic ideas in education sort of hit mainstream. And suddenly all these democratic schools popped up. There were more then than there are now. So, for example, you, you told me before, there used to be nine democratic schools in Sydney alone, and now there's just two. So why the decline? Why did these idealistic schools start closing? Isn't it a sign that their ideology, ideology was naive and just not fit for purpose? Or is something else going on? Yes, and I think I think there was a big um, cultural change that I think that there was, you know, an overreaction. The, the pendulum swung too far away um, when people started to react to what was happening in that hippie era. So the, the next generation decided that this this was this was too loose. It was you know too out of control, and and in some situations it was. It was an extreme. Um, hippie kind of of attitude and the problem is people keep seeing that as no responsibility no respect do whatever you like lie about on the beach you know not have to be accountable or uh, be engaged and I think that that has carried through and that is in a way clouded what actually democratic education is about and what it's wanting to achieve um, a lot of people want to become democratic teachers because it looks very easy um, you know, you're going in, you're talking to the children, the children are making a lot of decisions and, and you're engaged in lots of different levels. But with that, freedom is a huge amount of responsibility. And also as a teacher, you are accountable on a much higher level so that in public system, you have a principal, you have deputy principals, you have your team leaders, they're all ahead of you in the accountability line. Whereas if you're a democratic teacher, you're directly accountable to your clients, which are your children and their families. So everything that you do is in a form of accountability. So because the classrooms are open and the parents are allowed in and out of the classroom whenever they like and they come in and help with all sorts of things and, and they're involved every day, very seldom in my classroom would I be the only adult in the classroom. So there's a lot of accountability there. And there is also the need now for training of teachers to be different. You, a lot of people like the idea of being able to walk in, but there is a lot of training for yourself before you can be a very effective democratic teacher. You have to be really aware of your own stuff that's going on and why you're wanting to be uh, less strict and why you're wanting to uh, be able to run the program that you want because the problem is people come in and go oh yes this is lovely but then when they have four or five year olds turn to them and go no we're not doing that they have no strategies they have no skill beyond punishment discipline humiliation shame psychological warfare to be able to manage these children because they think that they have to be in control at all times Hmm. That is, that's quite hard. It's quite hard for people to be able to do. If we are going to start these new schools, we can't, you can't just jump in and go, oh, let's do this. There needs to be a whole lot of detail and time and spend and training. Um, teacher training needs to be totally and absolutely reviewed. That seems to make a lot of sense that there's a bad way of doing democratic education as a good way. What I wonder is if you're not fully in control, if you're sharing control with the children themselves in meetings, they have an equal voice to each adult. So they actually outnumber the adults and they influence the, even the, the board's decisions. If you're not in control, how can you ensure that your school is a success? Surely you're just at the whim of the, of the children themselves. 
everybody is a is a participating paying member in any kind of conversation. And the wonderful thing about having those kind of conversations is there is always a voice of reason. And the voice of reason could be a five-year-old. The voice of reason could be a seven-year-old, or I could be the voice of reason. And it's the ability to be able to listen to each other. So it's about developing individualization and being um, independent, but it's also about learning how to be interdependent, that you need to rely on everybody. You need to bring in as many voices as you can to make a decision. And often I would go into a meeting and I would have a mindset on how I thought it was got, the outcome was going to be or what I thought the solution was or what I thought the problem was. But after a conversation with everybody in the space and everybody having an opportunity to speak, so that the decision is, that's been made is often the very best decision we could have made at the time. Mm. And the wonderful thing about continuing to have conversations the following week, a child can bring it up again and go, I'm still not happy with that decision. And we would have another conversation about that. So to be able to successfully run a democratic education process or system, you need to know how to communicate. You need to know how to listen. And behaviour is a is a fear. And often people talk about behaviour and discipline and order and routine and structures and how important they are. And what I've found, actually, is that they're important to the adults. Routine and structure and discipline and um, management of behaviour is a fear of the adults, not the children. Hmm. And they need to know, the adults need to know that they're in control. A lot of people describe uh, democratic schools as a, a middle-class indulgence. You know, most democratic schools in the world are private schools. They don't uh, tick the boxes for their for their respective nations' funding categories. So they, they feel they have to become private schools. And then inevitably that means only a certain type of child attends these schools who don't have um, children from poor backgrounds and you usually get children whose parents are highly invested in their education. So some would say, well, it's small wonder that these children end up becoming conscientious, confident young people because they're just born into the right families and the schools the schools and the education system shouldn't take too much credit. But what's interesting is what you're doing now is you're trying to start a school uh, which is democratic in principles but which works with children who come from quite difficult backgrounds, who often don't have very strong support and very strong role models at home. Uh, and you think for some reason this is going to work in that situation. So can you tell me about this, this new school you're proposing and why you think a democratic trusting approach will work with children from difficult backgrounds? Mm. Well, when I um, left... Carambina, which was a democratic school I was at, I was employed as the principal of a small school in Redfern in Sydney, which has a high Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And this school was specifically set up for children who were being failed by the system, the children who were not attending at school at all, children who were being expelled or suspended um, for a socioeconomic area, and of course, um, they had behaviour problems, learning difficulties, the whole gamut. These kids had every possible issue. And a group, a, a religious group, decided to start up a specific school for them. So um, I, the school started at the beginning of 2013. So it was February 2013 it opened. And I was the third principal they employed by August of that year. 
by the time I got there, they had turned over 10 staff members. Um, so it, it was it was in a very difficult stage of development, especially as a new school. So, of course, I brought in my democratic principles and, and beliefs on how children should be engaged with and how I felt that young people should be part of their learning and their education system. So we began to change and we began to look at how we could do things differently because everything that was happening at that time was not working. Children were not learning, they were not engaging, they couldn't get them in the classrooms, they couldn't get them to do anything. It was just it was just like a battlefield all day. It was just like just stopping these kids from, from attacking each other pretty much. So we started the process of gathering them in a room and sitting them all down and having a conversation and calming them down and engaging them in a conversation about what was going on and what they would like to do. And one of the first things that we did was every Friday, we're going to go on an excursion. Where would you like to go? And the first time I had that conversation with the kids, they looked at me as if there was something seriously wrong with me hmm. because they'd never one been asked the question and they'd never been engaged in a conversation. So when something was happening, instead of me going, don't you talk to me like that, don't you dare do this, don't you dare do that, I was saying, so what are you thinking now and what's going on for you and what can I do to help and what can we do differently and what are you needing here and what is the problem? And you must be just feeling so exhausted and so stressed. You must be terrified at the moment because you're holding that chair up in the air, engaging in a real conversation with these children. And understanding the pain and the fear and the drama that they were dealing with every single day. And then the education system was expecting them to come down and sit down on a chair and learn the vowel sounds. Mm. So what we did was we switched it whole around and we looked at the social and emotional and physical well-being of these children first. So we went and picked them up every morning and we brought them to school and we fed them, we gave them lunch, we provided them with showers, we provided them with medical care, um, we took them to the medical centre. You know, we did everything possible so that these children were physically and socially and emotionally safe. And the other thing that we did and said to them over and over, we're not going to give up on you. You're, no matter what you do, I'm not going to suspend you. I'm not going to expel you. I found within a year we had 80% attendance. We had children engaging in the classroom. We had um, conversations with the adults. We had all the parents coming in for lunch and on Thursdays, which is cultural day, so embedding culture. And just through those conversations and that training, it was going back to the parents. And the kids were starting to talk to their parents in a way that was more respectful and saying, you know, you don't talk on your phone while I'm talking to you and, and those kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. So... That's what proved to me that the democratic process and the understanding and engaging the individual works. doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you're from. And that is, is the evidence and enough for me because by the end of the second year, we had 93% attendance. That sounds like an amazing transformation um, in that school where you, which you led for a few years. Five years. So just to get it straight, that was a that was a school for children who, as you said, have supposedly failed the system. And what you're proposing now is to start a new school, which is for children who haven't necessarily had any problems with the system, but a school just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So that's in, a very interesting idea. I mean, some people might claim that's just that might be dumbing down, and other people would say the whole idea of a Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander school kind of goes against 
Multiculturalism. Why do we need, in this day and age, an ethnically segregated school? So what do you say to that criticism about dumbing down and segregation? I say, fooey on that, there's a whole lot of rot. (laughs) (laughs) If the education system was working and, you know, the children were thriving and that assimilation was real, they were really being assimilated into society and they were treated in an equal way and had equal rights and expectations. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a strong believer in, in public education. I think that we desperately need to have public education and every child has a right to learn, every child has a right to be educated. Some children thrive in our military camp kind of learning environment. Some kids love that. They love the discipline and the structure and the order. And that's how some children are. Other children are much more artistic. So we have the dance schools and we have the um, drama schools here in Sydney. So we have a, you know, a range of, of those kind of schools. And, of course, you've also got the kids who are physically talented, so we've got the sports schools. We also have Muslims and Catholics and Jesuits and every other possible school. But we don't have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander high school. So we have Greek schools. We have German schools. We have English grammar schools but we don't have an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander school in Australia, in Sydney. It's their country, it's their land, it's where they are from, and we don't have a school that acknowledges them. One thing that I think people might be wondering is if the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community needs their own school and their own democratic school, why are you, as a white person, why are you the one to provide it? Wouldn't wouldn't a school under your leadership be inherently sort of a colonial mindset? You must come up against this. So what Yes. What do you say back to that? Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I do. And when, yeah, when I went and visited the um, Aboriginal elders, um, there's a group of them and they run an organisation called Babayan and they are, they support, they're very supportive of the whole community and, and they're an amazing group of women. And when I sat down and said I was starting a school, that was the first thing they said to me is, yeah, love, but you're white. And I said, yes, very much so. And I said the only way that we can move forward is if we do this together. So we're struggling away in the education system trying to support these children separate and segregated in a way from their community and elders because they are so terrified of institutions. They don't come in. They don't become part of the school. And I said, my role is to do the white person stuff, to do the bureaucracy, to get through the registration, to work with the education department. Because that's what I've done. I've done that. I have experience at starting schools, registering schools, getting the paperwork done. And that would be my role. So my role is to enable these children to be able to thrive in the society they live in. And at the moment, the society we live in is a white society. So that's what I'm bringing. I'm bringing white society to the school. Mm. to be able to enable your children to have the skills to step into society, to be thriving, contributing members. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is most, it's very frustrating to be reading about democratic schools and all the amazing things going on. And, you know, basically what I've become beguiled by is the idea that we can have school without drudgery, that children can learn without ever being forced to do all these boring routines and exercises it's so alluring this idea that a child has all the natural curiosity they need to get a great education but at least for the time being I am stuck as a teacher in a state school 
and most of the jobs in education are similar. They're, they're teaching jobs in state school or even conventional private schools. For, for those educators who are listening, do, do, you, do you believe in compromise? Is there anything that's, that mainstream teachers can do within the confines of their job to give children more freedom, to try and harness some of this energy which you harness in, in democratic schools? Or is it all or nothing? Oh, no, absolutely. There is so many small things that you could be doing in everyday classrooms. And, you know, I've had lots and lots of conversations with young teachers about how you can be using these principles in uh, your own classroom, whether it's a very strict school or not. Um, so what I often say to kids is, all right, let's negotiate. Let's talk about what you're wanting. Let me talk about what you're needing and let me talk about what I'm wanting and what I'm needing. So if you can have a classroom where you can walk into your classroom and you've got a child who's causing a disruption in the classroom, instead of you taking on the responsibility solely and saying, you need to do this, blah, blah, punishment, detention, kick you out, you can't do this, all of that kind of mentality, you would stop the whole class and go, I'm finding it really hard to continue to teach when people are not cooperating. What can we do about this? Mm. And initially, yeah. the children will look at you as if there's something seriously wrong with you. Developing that collegial sense of this is our room, this is our learning space, how do we want to learn together? And what do we need to be doing to learn? And then negotiating and having a conversation about that. Some children struggle with noise, so you could have headphones on them. Other children like working as groups and working with three or four children together to do their projects, setting it up in four different ways so that you're accommodating the different needs of your children. It's about having those conversations and building the relationships and having that ownership. And every time something happens in the classroom that's not working, instead of you being the, the disciplinarian, you're the facilitator of a conversation and sitting people around so everybody can look at each other and go, this is happening in the classroom. Do we want to be learning and thriving in this space? How do we feel safe? Having those conversations and then giving the children the skills to understand what they're actually needing. So teaching them how to listen, but also teaching them to be able to say, you know, I need to be in a quiet space. I can't learn when people are making lots of noise. You know, so, so engaging in those kind of conversations, having real relationships with the children. I think you've, you've just highlighted loads of really useful things there, so thank you. One, I guess, is, is showing children that they have a control over the culture of their classroom and, and maybe asking them, what do you want from this, from this space and this time? I've tried to do that in this new school year with my classes, getting them to think about why they're there all too often students sort of say well I'm here because I have to be which is true and I do my work because if I don't I'll get in trouble which again is true and it seems like a big wasted opportunity if if students can realize that there is something in this for them then then there's a lot of power that can be unlocked there it's certainly what I need right now as a teacher to acknowledge that I can embody these values of um, giving children more freedom within my job because my instinct after reading all these uh, idealistic books is to think, wow, my job is so oppressive. I have to do all these things I don't agree with, telling kids what to do all the time. Um, I want to leave. So I, it's quite difficult to go through work like that. And I'm looking for, for ways to sort of try and live my values within the job. And then another thing that's difficult is simply seeing that, like, well, trying to figure out what works, basically. And the diff the difficult confounding factor is, and this is true in most schools, schools are, uh, students are used to being coerced. They're used to being rewarded and punished uh, based on their behavior. 
And when a teacher comes in who actually says, well, I want you to do things for yourself and I want you to think about what, what actually matters to you, they don't understand quite often. And I think it can be really difficult as a teacher trying to do things differently because often children's first concern with a new teacher is how strict are they? What am I going to get away with? Um, can I just sit here doing nothing? Are they going to stop me? And um, and I think it does require a lot. It does require skill and experience and training to be able to preserve students' autonomy without letting chaos reign. I think that's kind of been a bit of a theme to what you said, which is you you agree that conflicts exist in every school but you don't agree that the absolute authority of adults is necessary in order to mediate these conflicts. You think there's a lot to be gained by giving students a voice and treating them as an equal. You know, then that goes against most of the accepted wisdom in schools. One thing I've been asking everyone on the show, Fran, uh, is this. What do you wish more people were talking about in education? I think we need to be talking more about um, mental health issues. I think we need to be acknowledging more that that people are suffering and that we need to be able to do something about it, not just go, that person is suffering and, and sending them off to get some kind of medicine or some kind of um, fix, quick fix for, for the issue. I think that we need to be looking at how can we keep ourselves well mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, and to be taught and encouraged to do that right from the very start. If you, if you keep telling people how to think, how to behave, how to set up, what to do, how to do it, people lose that ability to be able to be making good decisions because they've never actually had to make any. Um, I think I would like us to be having more conversations about having a broader normal, having a, a broader perspective of what normal is, because I think normal is getting narrower and narrower and we're, we're eliminating children with uh, autism and Down syndrome and cerebral palsy who have a huge amount to contribute to the world. So again, people with disabilities are again part of this eliminating process. So I think that that's what I'd like, you know, and even though I'm studying an in, in exclusive school, it's about inclusivity. Fran, thank you so much. That's an excellent uh, message to end the episode on. And I really appreciate uh, spending a Saturday evening recording with me. So Fran McCarthy, thank you so much. No problem. It's been a pleasure. I love talking. Anytime, Stan. That was Fran McCarthy. You can read about her new project, Community Exchange, a school for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, at the website linked in the description. It was great to finally meet someone who knows democratic schools firsthand. The next step for me is to go and visit one. I'm still interested in exploring how democratic education can be made available to everyone. The most famous democratic schools cost money, and so are limited in what they can teach us, what works for a wealthy, engaged community may not work everywhere else. Sudbury model schools charge fees, but they aim to educate each child for less than what the state pays. They're showing that amazing things can be done without extra cash. 
In Sudbury schools, there are no timetables, no mandatory subjects, and students and staff each have one vote when it comes to making decisions. But for now at least, is democratic education only for the wealthy? Not everywhere. Later in the season, I'll be talking to Rosalind Spencer, who was so disappointed by the local schools that she started a free-to-attend private school. Sadly, her school is no longer open, but the idea lives on in a place called The New School in London. I'm still thinking about that question, reform or revolution? By now, I'm convinced that our schools have become inhuman. They are machines that do a bad job of nurturing people. The question is how to change it. One option is to focus on reforming state schools, which could help millions of children. But it's difficult work, and it's not clear how small changes could ever make childhood meaningfully more free. The other option is to prove that more radical approaches can work by focusing on radical schools. These places are few and far between. I think all of the children in radical British schools could probably fit into one state secondary school. So the direct effect on children's lives would be small. But there's a chance that it could trigger a long-term shift towards a more human approach to education. Arguably, the main barrier to change is ignorance. Most parents whose children are struggling in school are suffering alone. Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll be aware by now that there's been a battle in our universities over the limits of free speech. Next episode, I'll be talking to Piers Ben, a lecturer in philosophy. Piers used to work with Kathleen Stock, and he gives his thoughts on the campaign against her. We discuss whether we really have a cancel culture problem, whether free speech is under threat, and whether there are murky forces using the culture wars to further hidden agendas. See you next time.